Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, just to let you know, I come from sunny Florida, and uh, this weather is fabulous, isn't it? I mean, we, we normally have heat indexes of over 110, and uh, when we landed in Detroit, the temperature was in the 60s, and it's spectacular. It's really good to be here. I want to share a little story with you before we begin. Uh, there's a man in the process of robbing a house. He had scoped out the house. There was a lot of good loot, and he's starting to rob it. It's pitch black. He can't see a thing, but he knows where everything is. And as he's putting the, the loot in a sack, he hears this voice, in sort of a whisper. And the voice says, Jesus is going to get you. So he stops, he looks around, he doesn't see anything, and he's thinking, well, I must be hearing things, and he's going once again, going through the process of robbing this house. And sure enough, as he's doing it, the voice is a little louder and a little closer. And he hears it again. Jesus is going to get you. Well, at this point, he's thinking, of all the places to pick, I had to pick a haunted house. And then he remembered he had a cigarette lighter in his pocket, so he flicked the cigarette lighter on. And there, as the room was lit up, he noticed on the, sitting on a bookshelf was this big old parrot. And the parrot looked at him and said, Jesus is going to get you. And he smiled. He says, oh, man, Polly, I thought you were a ghost. And the parrot very irately said, my name's not Polly, it's Moses. <laughs> Moses. What kind of person names their parrot Moses? The parrot said, the same person that named their Rottweiler Jesus. Get him, Jesus! <laughs> that actually has nothing to do with what I'm going to share with you this morning, but I like telling those stories. What we're going to be looking at this morning uh, really, hopefully it'll help with what Pastor Phil's been teaching on, is looking at a little bit of Exodus 12, a little bit of John 12, and see how they relate to one another, because it's an amazing parallel. And, you know, when, when we read all Scripture is inspired by God, everything has a purpose as we read through the Scriptures, and the book of Exodus is no different. So, if you would, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at the first Passover. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. And there'll be some scriptures uh, on the screen for you to look at. Exodus 12, 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So on the tenth day of this month, it's the Hebrew month of Nisan, which is spelled like the Japanese car with one less S, Nisan, on the tenth of this month, and the day actually begins at nighttime the night before. So at nighttime, a lamb is brought into each household in Egypt. Now, later on in the book of Numbers, Moses, not the parrot, but the real Moses, he counted 
more than 600,000 men of war, men over the age of 20. And if we estimate conservatively that they have, uh, many, most of them would have a wife and some children, it's very likely that the Israelites who left Egypt in the Exodus would have been as many as 2 million, maybe even 3 million people. So the households, we're talking hundreds of thousands of households, hundreds of thousands of lambs, and it's very likely since the day begins at nighttime the night before, it's very likely that those lambs would have been selected on the ninth day of Nisan. Now, just to give you some quick background, I, before I was, I was saved, I was an accountant. So I'm a numbers guy, and the Bible is full of numbers. When you see numbers, you really need to pay attention to them. So you'll see where all of this fits together. So we read next in verse 4. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. And so think in terms of community. If there were single people, they were told to combine so that they could have their own little community because each household represented a community that ultimately would uh, be saved by the blood of the lamb that they've brought into the house. Now think, think of what a household would be. We have some children here. Kids are sitting with their parents and the door opens up and in walks Papa with a lamb. What are the kids going to do? They're going to play with it. They're going to want to, to adopt it. It's going to be part of the family. And that's exactly what it's intended to do. As those lambs are brought into the household, those little communities, they are intended to be part of the family. And so the Papa's, Bring the lambs in. The kids are playing with the lamb. Let's name our lamb Fluffy. How's that? And as they're playing with the lambs, the papas are watching because the lambs are, are supposed to be perfect. Go on to the next slide. The lamb should be, it says in verse 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male. A year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now I want you to notice a few things there. Notice that the pronoun changes. First it's a lamb, then it's the lamb, and now it's your lamb. And that lamb is part of the community, part of the family, and it has to be unblemished. It has to be perfect and spotless in order to be that perfect sacrifice. So keep it until the 14th day of the same month. That ultimately is when Passover takes place. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Notice that? Kill it. Remember, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of lambs. And you would have thought it would have said, kill them at twilight. But you see, all of those lambs ultimately represent one lamb. And you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. And they're all killed at the same time. So 
the lambs are taken outside of the camp. And I would imagine that there would have been some sort of signal, probably a blast of a ram's horn, that would have told them at the exact moment that that lamb was to be killed. And all the lambs are killed all at the same time, representing that one lamb. And the blood of the lamb would have been captured in the bottom of the door frame, uh, probably in a hole that would have been dug out to serve as a basin. Okay, everybody still tracking with me? And so look now at verse 22. Now, what I want to mention also is the papas, as they're watching the lambs, remember the lamb has to be perfect. The papas have to make sure as the lamb is interacting with the household that it's everything it's supposed to be. And once the papa determines that, all the papas would have made a pronouncement. The lamb is worthy to be slain. And that's when the lambs would have been brought out after the pronouncement that the lamb was worthy to be slain. Look at verse 22. Because the mode of placing the blood... Go to the next slide. Oh, that's good. No, no, you're good. The mode of placing the blood on the door points to the fulfillment of Passover at the cross. And so look at verse 22. It says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop. And we're going to be looking today afterwards at the Passover banquet and some of these elements... Uh, that were part of the original first Passover continued. And one of the things was the, the usage of the hyssop plant, which will be represented by something on uh, the Seder plates that we'll all participate in. It says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop. The hyssop was sort of a natural paintbrush. It had a long stem, and the stem at the end of it had kind of a brush-like ending to it. So picture this long paintbrush says take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin the lamb after the lambs were slaughtered the blood would have been captured and placed at the bottom of the door frame it says dip it in the blood which is in the basin apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel that's the top of the door and then to the two doorposts those are the sides of the door so follow what they were told to do dip it in the basin the bottom put it on the top And then to the two sides. What did I just do? Try it again. Dip it in the bottom. Put it on the top. And then to the two sides. Trace the cross. The children of Israel were not only told that it would be the blood of the Lamb that would save them. That's the picture of Passover. But as they placed the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts, They did so in such a way as to put a cross, telling them what the fulfillment of Passover would be. When Jesus hung on that bloody cross, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Passover is fulfilled ultimately at the cross. With Jesus' death, Jesus died on Passover. Okay, everybody with me? Now let's look at John 12. John chapter 12. The context of of John 12 is that Jesus has just 
basically done the greatest ministry of his, the, the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead after four days in the ground. You ever wonder why Jesus waited for that time? Well, one of the traditions was that when someone died, the soul would hover over the body for three days. And then after three days, the soul would leave and the person was really dead. There was no chance for revival. And it was said by the rabbis that only the Messiah could raise someone from the dead after four days. So when Lazarus and his sisters, who were friends of Jesus, when he was very sick and the sisters sent word to Jesus that he was sick and he was perhaps even dying, they fully expected Jesus to show up. But he waited and ultimately uh, didn't come until Lazarus was dead four days. And that's when he raised him from the dead, uh, doing what we could call a very clear messianic miracle. So that it was done with the purpose of pointing himself to the people as the promised Messiah. So the context of that now is this beginning the last week of Jesus. So we're up to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, Lazarus is now a big celebrity. That Early that day... He was interviewed on Oprah. That's how, that's how important he was. But I want you to follow again. Think of numbers. Passover is the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. And I believe the Passover, the last supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, would have been the 14th of Nisan on a Thursday evening. So let's count back. Wednesday was the 12th. Tuesday the 11th. Monday the 10th. Sunday the 9th, Saturday the 8th. So that's six days before, and that would have begun on Friday night. So if Jesus died on Friday, as I'm a kind of an old-fashioned traditionalist, I believe that, then we're talking about uh, basically a Friday night dinner, which in Jewish tradition would have been a Shabbat meal, that Martha is serving, and Lazarus is, de- is there. Now, let's read on. This is an interesting event. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? and given, back, given to poor people. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So John's now giving us some more information. Judas wasn't ultimately the betrayer, but he was stealing money from the ministry in the process. 
Verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now we're up to verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned he was there. Now I want to stop for a moment because in the Gospel of John, John uses this term and it actually is really talking about particular Jewish people, Judeans, who were in opposition to Jesus, basically the religious leaders. So when you see Jews in the Gospel of John, understand that everybody is a Jew in this story, except for an occasional Gentile who's mentioned as a Gentile. So here, these Jewish religious leaders learned that he was there, and they wanted not only to see Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus. And then we read, But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews, Jewish religious leaders, were going away and were believing in Jesus. So because of this miracle, that was clearly a messianic miracle, even some of the Jewish religious leaders were believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. It was very clear what he had done. And so we come now to the ninth of Nisan. It says on the next day. So the eighth would have been from Friday night to Saturday night. The ninth would be from Saturday night to Sunday night. And as I said earlier, the ninth was typically the day that the lamb would be selected. So we read on the next day, the ninth of Nisan, the selection day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! In Hebrew, Hoshiana, Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so this is what we commonly call Palm Sunday, and here's the basis for it. Palm Sunday, which coincides with the day the Lamb is selected, Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy from the prophet Zechariah that basically Jesus took ownership of. He got on this donkey specifically to enter Jerusalem, declaring himself the Messiah. And so as he's entering Jerusalem, he's declaring himself Messiah. And this particular prophecy uh, kind of becomes what I would call a kingdom prophecy. In other words, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, uh, people recognize that something happens when the king enters. And uh, if you look, go to the next slide. This is from, uh, from Leviticus. It says, On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day, a rest on the eighth day. Go on. First day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Next slide. 
So that was the Feast of Tabernacles with the palm branches thrown on the floor in front of Jesus. And we read in Zechariah 14, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So as they see Jesus entering Jerusalem, they're saying, well, he's coming as King Messiah. And when King Messiah comes, we celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's why they threw the palm branches in front of him. That's what it was about. They thought somehow that this was the coming king. And they cried out, Lord, save us. But they weren't really saying, Lord, save us from our sins. They were saying, save us from those Roman oppressors that we want to get rid of. And so, as you see that, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, this is Luke 19, he saw the city, wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now have been hidden from your eyes. Next slide. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will levy you to the ground, your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so as you look at this, what Jesus was saying is, you don't understand why I'm coming. And his prediction that not one stone would be upon another, that all came true. As he enters into Jerusalem, he predicted that the temple would be destroyed, which it would be in the year 70 A.D. by the Romans. And so, that night would have begun the 10th of Nisan. Go to the next slide. Remember, the 10th of Nisan is when the Lamb enters the house, into the community. Now Jesus enters the community. And just like the papas are the heads of those little households, the head of this community that Jesus entered is the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And so, as he enters Jerusalem, remember what those three days were for. He entered, the lamb is brought into the household on the 10th and ultimately killed on the 14th. It had to be perfect and spotless. And so there's going to be testing to see if he was everything that he's supposed to be, just as the papas would have tested the lambs. And so turn to Luke chapter 20. They had to test him to see if somehow he would be everything he's supposed to be. So in Luke, in Luke chapter 20, we have all of these different tests. The first test has to do with his authority. We read, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 20, On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him, and they spoke to him, saying, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered, said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men. 
They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from, and Jesus said, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. First test, he passes. Next one is in verse 19. And this one they thought they had him. If there was one thing the people hated more than anything else, it was paying taxes to the Romans. And if Jesus told them that they should pay taxes to the Romans, they were figuring the people would turn on him. If Jesus said, don't pay the taxes to the Romans, they could turn him over to the Roman authorities. There was no escape for this test, so they thought. The scribes and the chief priests, this is Luke 20, verse 19, tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them, which was about the vine growers. So they watched him, sent spies pretending to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. And here's the question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? No getting around it. If he says, don't pay the taxes, they turn him over to the Romans. If he says, pay the taxes, the people are going to turn against him. But he detected their trickery, said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. Being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They tried questioning whether he believed in the resurrection, who, using the, the idea of a leveret marriage, but we're going to skip on to that. Once they determined that they couldn't trick him, Jesus basically passed all the tests. Now he's going to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And what we we're going to go through later on after the service at the banquet it's kind of a reenactment, looking at the Last Supper, what Jesus was doing with his disciples. But I want you to go on to the next uh, slide. I want you to look at this particular passage in John. It's one of my favorite passages, and I'll tell you why. Because... Jesus plays a little game with the people taking him away. You'll see what I mean in a second. Here's the betrayal by Judas, beginning in John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. There was probably about 500 people that came to take Jesus away. They wanted to make sure that there would be no mishaps. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. Now the word he in your Bible should be italicized. The reason for that, what it means is in the original language, it's not there. And so when he says, I am he, he's really basically giving us who he is. He's the great I am of the Old Testament. And they said, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am. Ego me in the Greek. And so when he says this, look what happens. Judas also who was betraying him was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. You ever read that and wonder what was going on? Here's what I think was going on. I think Jesus was playing peekaboo with them. And I think just for a brief moment, he removed that veil. And for a split second, that's all it took, revealed his full glory in a way that just basically knocked them on their backsides. 500 coming to take him away. Therefore, he again said, asked them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He says, I told you that I'm he. If you seek me, let them go their way. So Jesus goes with the mob, eventually is brought before the governor Pontius Pilate. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate says, I find no fault with this man. I find no guilt in this man. In essence, he was saying the lamb is worthy to be slain. Jesus goes to the cross. Next slide. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Jesus and Passover go hand in hand. And that last week of Jesus so beautifully parallels the first Passover at the time of Moses. So what I want to conclude with is a question for you. See, in order for the Israelites to be saved from the last plague that was coming, the death of the firstborn, they had to personally apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their houses. And we looked at how they actually did that, from the bottom to the top and the two sides. And then the angel of death, called the destroyer in the book of Exodus, would see the blood on the door, and what would he do? Passed over that house. That's where the name Passover came from. And so, in order for them to be saved, they had to personally apply the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of their houses. It works the same way for us. In order for each individual to be saved, we have to personally apply the blood of the Lamb to our hearts. 
And as we get ready to conclude, I want to ask you that question. Have you applied the blood of the Lamb to your hearts? Have you taken what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and made it personal for you? My prayer, and we'll pray in a moment, is that you have. So, as we conclude, I want you to do me a favor. You should have all received one of these brochures. Could you please take them out? Hold it up like this. Let me see that you have it. I know I watched Pastor Phil put them in the bulletin, so I know you have them. So what I'd like us to do together is an ancient Jewish tradition. Would you all like to do an ancient Jewish tradition with me? Yes, I can't hear you. Okay. It's called the tearing of the brochure. It's an ancient tradition. Here's, here's what I'd like you to do. Fold it on the perforation. You don't have to tear it yet. Just fold it, make it easy to tear. And then at the count of three, we're going to tear this together. And if you do this right, it's going to make this really neat sound. Okay? Everybody ready? Count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. A little slow, but that's okay. Now, how many of you have smartphones? Here's what I need you to do. Now, I'm an old dinosaur, so I do this. I prefer old school. But if you have a smartphone, see on the, this, this picture, a little biographical information, there's a QR code. Everybody know what a QR code is? If you take a picture of that QR code, it should take you to the landing page of our website where you can get our prayer letter, you can make a contribution to chosen people directly from your phone. If you prefer, like me, to get out a pen or a pencil and fill this out, same thing will happen. And so by filling this out or by going to the the website, you can be part of our prayer team. Now, we have a book table in the back, and there are two particular books that I want to make reference to. This is called The Gospel in the Passover. There's a number of articles in this particular book. One of them is an article that I did, basically what I shared with you this morning on the parallel between John 12 and Exodus 12. But this is an excellent resource, and we sell it it's for sale on the book table for $10. And then this is a book called Isaiah 53 Explained. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, it's probably the clearest presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This has been our most effective evangelistic resource. If you go to the book table with one of these filled out, or with the phone showing that you went to the website and filled that out on there, just as a, as a way of thanking you for being part of our prayer team, we'd like to give you one of these books as a gift. And you can choose which one you want. 
So that's a way for you to be part of our prayer team and ultimately to basically be uh, connected with us in that way and receive a free book. Now, some of the other books that we have on the table, this is a book on Israel's feasts, Israel's holy days and type and prophecy. It's a great book on all the Old Testament feasts, how they are point to Jesus' first and second coming and how they all ultimately are fulfilled in our Messiah. Great book for for that. The very first feast is the Passover, which we're going to be celebrating uh, a little later on in about a half hour or so. This is a book. This is called the Messianic Passover Haggadah. It's called Haggadah is a Hebrew word that means the telling. And this is a way for you to celebrate Passover uh, with your family. The Passover season is in the spring. Uh, but uh, we're going to be celebrating it now in August, but you can celebrate it whenever you want. But it's a great way to, to teach your children about the Passover and all the instructions are in there. The Hebrew is transliterated into English, so you could seem like you are a Hebrew scholar. It's a wonderful way to celebrate Passover. And also on the table is a book called Messiah and the Passover, which is a, probably one of the best uh, one of the best uh, studies of the Feast of Passover. I've written two books. This is called The Heart of the Apostle, which is a commentary on Romans 9 through 11 uh, that uh, uh, I think you'll find very helpful in your personal study. And this is a book that uh, I was writing uh, over many years. It started out to be a commentary on Psalm 23. And there's lots of commentaries on Psalm 23, lots of good commentaries on Psalm 23. And I was trying to give a different kind of perspective. So I said, I named it, the Lord is my shepherd, Dianu, which is a word from Passover, which means that's enough. And uh, it really is a way of saying the Lord is enough no matter what. And then COVID hit and it Basically, the book focuses on how can Christians be content even in the midst of a COVID pandemic. And it really all centers on the fact that the Lord should always be enough in our lives. So be sure to go to the book table. Check those out. Uh, We have, do we have any of the Moody commentaries? Two. Uh, There's, uh, from a previous event that we had, we we bought some commentaries from uh, Moody Bible Institute. And it's probably one of the best uh, commentaries on the whole Bible, if you'd be interested in that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And again, remember that question I asked you. Have you made that personal decision to personally apply the blood of the Lamb to your heart? I'm sure this is a great church, but... You don't get saved going to church any more than you become a hamburger going to McDonald's. You need to make that personal commitment. Each individual, you don't get saved because your parents were great Christians. You have to make that personal application to your heart. So I pray uh, that as you speak to the Lord in the quiet of your heart now, you would make that decision to accept Jesus as your Savior. So let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your great love for us, 
Thank you that even while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us, that we might have eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible parallel between the first Passover and the last week of Jesus. May we be encouraged to see how the Bible just so perfectly fits together. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.